0: Okay, so I want to, my starting point is a quotation from the Freedom in Christ course. And this is just a little plug. We'll be running the Freedom in Christ course later on in, in the year. And um, this is a fantastic way to actually explore uh, how to become more and more free in, in your faith. But the, the quotation I want to start with is justice, mercy. And grace. And you have to listen quite carefully to this. And and if I. I hope that I'm not going to mess this up either. But justice is getting what we deserve, mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting. What we do not deserve. I'll say that again. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you do not deserve. And the essence of the gospel is that we all deserve justice, but that we have all received mercy and grace instead of that. Short Sermon, absolutely. absolutely. And if you want a title for today, you can call it Justice, Mercy and Grace. And these things are all very well when we talk about them in this abstract theological way. But What I want to do is I want to explore how those themes work out practically in our lives as a church in one particular way. First I want to do a little bit of context and background. That the world we live in is constantly changing. There are many, many things that are very different now in the world we live in from the world of a few years ago. And sometimes we can embrace these changes with with excitement and with alacrity, And in other ways, (coughs) excuse me, that the world has changed, cause issues that we as a church trip up and cause us problems and, and we don't react desperately well to it. Sometimes when issues in the world come up, we can act more with justice or with judgment than we do with mercy and with grace. If I was preaching this sermon 20 years ago one of the issues that we would be talking about would be Sunday trading because 20 years ago those people who were around 20 years ago everybody got incredibly het up about Sunday trading and shops opening. Now it seems to not be an issue at all if the number of people I meet in Tesco's on a Sunday afternoon from the church is anything to go by. Another one which potentially is still slightly more contentious, but I I think has actually been mostly resolved, is the issue of divorce, and in particular, people remarrying who are divorced. And, talking to Alan, he reckons that around 12% of the church here, this church, are affected directly or indirectly by, by divorce. This was a big issue 20 years ago. Now, it seems to pretty well be a non-issue. But actually, I'm not preaching 20 years ago. I'm preaching today in September 2019. And two of the issues that our society is changing its attitudes towards, and we as the church can often trip up about, are the issues of sexuality and gender identity. These are things that I'm quite used to talking about at work, but I must confess, I feel slightly nervous about talking about in the church. I will be touching on a few issues that could provoke um, things to come up in people's lives on many fronts, and I've asked Stephen Jones, who, who leads our pastoral team, who, if you. Stephen, can you stand up? If, if anything comes up that you want to talk about or want to arrange um, a pastoral meeting, Stephen is your man. Pass the buck. And I also want you to listen and to actually not hear what I'm not saying, because this is <coughs> there's p- potential for the potential for the Twitter storm and, and the Facebook uh, thing to cause all sorts of of weird and wonderful Chinese whispers to go on. I also admit that I'm not desperately used to talking on this subject, and so I'd like to apologise if in some of my terminology I get things wrong. I want to be as inclusive as I can, and there are many different things that I'm going to be be addressing, Um, so let me just say how inclusive I want to be. (coughs) I'm going to use the word gay and by that I'm going to include anybody who has any attraction to their own gender, whether or not uh, they're doing anything about it, whether or not they're in a relationship, whether or not they're sexually active. This includes lesbians who are gay women, bisexual people who are attracted to both genders. And I also want to talk about people who, uh, I think the, the usual word now is trans, which is somebody who is not comfortable with their birth gender identity. Now this might express itself in what they wear. It may be that they're actually on, a, on the route to gender reassignment surgery. They may be taking hormones and so forth. And again, this can express itself in, in, in a variety of ways. It also includes People who would like to not identify with either gender, or people who have medical issues such as an extra chromosome where they don't actually naturally biologically fall into either gender. I want to include all of those people in all of those categories and all the ones that I've missed that are related to that. And I believe that every one of them is deeply loved by Jesus. Everyone is deeply loved. Jesus wants a relationship with them and everyone, he has a redemptive purpose for their life. The problem isn't with Jesus. The problem is often with us. So why am I preaching about this now? Uh, as I say, this is something that I, I deal with at work quite a lot. I have, I have plenty of gay colleagues. I have students who are... Um, Transsexual or gender neutral or somewhere in between. And these are people who are my friends. And I want to be able to invite them to church. But there are things that I sometimes hear, probably said without thinking, which actually would make that a little bit difficult. And there are things that I think if I invited one of my friends to church and something like that was said what would I feel like what would they feel like and that makes me a bit upset really it creates a bit of tension because I want my church to be somewhere where I can bring any of my friends where they can find Jesus and can have their lives transformed by the power of his glory in whatever way he chooses So this caused a bit of tension, and I was working out how do I resolve this. When Taiwo was giving his final sermon, I just felt I had God speak to me and give me a way forward to give us a context where I could talk about this, and hopefully where we could actually make a bit of progress. And I've been living with this ever since, and I... Hope to be able to, to talk about this to, to help us all. And it all comes back to judgment, mercy, and grace. Judgment, mercy, and grace. How do we treat? or deal with any of these issues. We may feel uncomfortable about them, but how do we treat these these issues? How do we approach people where where this this is a real part of their life? Because it's not just about behavior, it's about identity, and it's about community. Talking to one of my gay colleagues when he moved here, I said, oh, well, where are you planning to live? He said, well, I'm gonna live in Newcastle because there's a gay village there I feel that I will have a community around me. And that sounded to me very much like one of us saying, well, I'm going to move to this place because of the church there. I've got a community around me. It's at this level that we're talking. People's identity, their community and their life is deeply um, based on, on these things. And we need to, to give people who come among us, we need to give them the space for God to move because this is, this is more than just um, a, a small thing in their lives. Okay, so coming back to judgment, mercy and grace. This is one, these are the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7. He says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? And quite often, we can look at people who are different from us in whatever way, and we can see that difference rather than seeing them from God's perspective. Like, like Tony was talking about, rather than seeing that inner beauty that he, he has been given by God, face mask and all, rather than um, by outward appearances. And it's a little bit difficult to find stories in the Bible of how, where people um, in all of these, these categories, because they were not real issues in those days. The closest I can come is the Ethiopian eunuch in in Acts chapter 8 who was, at best, gender neutral. And this is actually not something I've ever heard a preacher bring out of that story. But yet, they were accepted, they received the gospel, they were baptised. If then, why not anybody else? So what I felt God point me towards is, and I've just lost a page there somewhere, Um, okay good, Um, was to talk about the encounter that Jesus had with three people in the Gospels, people who were um, at risk of isolation or actually were definitely rejected by the society around them because of issues to do with their sexual lives. They all happen to be women. Those are the stories that I have. But actually, I'm not going to apologise for that, because in fact, in those days, um, women did not enjoy the same status as men, and so were, in fact, more likely to be excluded. So this actually serves to emphasise the point. So the first of these is to be found in John chapter 8 verses 3 to 11 it's the woman caught in adultery. According to the religious laws of the time justice would have meant that she should be stoned to death. Now that's fortunately not something that we have these days at least not in our country. So the group of religious leaders brought her to Jesus because they wanted to trap him. And they said, well, she's been caught in adultery. And the, one of the translations says, in the very act. What should we do? Now here is a woman who is clearly going to be distressed. If she was caught... In the very act, she was probably not properly dressed. She's incredibly vulnerable. The crowd are wanted to kill her. What does Jesus do? Jesus turns the whole thing around on its head and says, If any of you don't have sin, you can cast the first stone see how he's applying what, the teaching that he's given about the speck and the log. Often we can look at other people and we can see the faults and the problems in their life and not see in our life. And He's turning it around and saying, why don't we reflect on what's going on in our own life? There's a, a little aspect of this story which I had never quite understood until I started to, to meditate on it while while preparing this sermon. That twice during this account, Jesus looks at the ground and seems to be completely distracted away from what's going on. But the more I thought about it, actually what he's doing, in the first instance, he's giving the woman a bit of space for for dignity, and the second, he's giving the crowd a bit of space. Rather like we might close our eyes when we're giving a, a gospel appeal, he's 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 saying, this is a a moment for you to process this for yourself. And slowly the crowd, it says, starting with the oldest, they realized that they had sin in their lives. They had things that that they they could easily have received judgment for. And they slowly dissipated until only Jesus was left. And he said, because he had no sin in his life, he would have legitimately been allowed to cast that first stone. But he says, I don't condemn you either. He, he reacted with grace and with mercy and not with judgment. The second story I want to talk about comes in Luke chapter 7, verses 35 to 50. Jesus has been invited for a meal at the home of one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders, whose name is Simon. This is not Simon Peter, this is a different Simon. And while he's sitting at dinner, a woman comes in, who the Bible describes as a sinful woman. Nobody quite knows precisely what that means, but most commentators that I've seen would regard that she was probably a prostitute. She comes in, she starts crying, washing Jesus' feet with her tears, wiping his feet with her hair, kissing his feet, and then she breaks open some perfume. Now, this is probably not done in a very British fashion. Right? Right? It was probably not a few delicate, subdued sobs. This is a Mediterranean country where people know how to express emotion. It was probably loud. it was probably distracting. she's a prostitute. she's probably dressed in a provocative manner. I don't quite know what a provocative manner would be for first century Middle East, but um, maybe you could imagine what it would be like in our context but Don't imagine too carefully, because I want you to concentrate on what I'm saying. She's visually distracting. She's making a lot of noise. She's being very emotional, very demonstrative. And then she breaks open the perfume. And suddenly the whole house is filled with this sweet uh, smell. And smell can have an amazing effect on us. There's, there's lunches being cooked now. If those doors open and suddenly wafts of cooking food come in, you'll all be distracted. So Simon, in whose house all this happens, he's, let's just say, a little bit peeved by all this going on. Can you imagine if you had invited somebody for dinner, somebody important, Somebody, perhaps notorious, but somebody who you are wanting to fight, and suddenly there was a disturbance like this. Well, you would probably be peeved as well. But rather than condemn her, Jesus tells a story to explain her position, and he he say he respects what she's done, what she's doing. He he understands, and he lets her know that she, he understands. And finally, he says go in peace. The third story I want to talk about is the woman at the well, who's in John chapter 4. So Jesus is on his travels. He's in a town called Sychar in Samaria, and it's about the middle of the day, and he sits down by a well. And a woman comes up to draw some water. We we all know this story. It's preached on quite a lot. While he's talking, he has a revelation from God that she has had five husbands and is currently living with someone with whom she's not married. And he he mentions this and brings it up in the conversation. This is probably most... uh, Preachers I've heard on this talk about this this issue probably means that she was a bit of a social outcast. She's drawing water on her own in the middle of the day rather than at the the cooler times, at the the beginning and end of the day, which would be normal. We We can only infer that, but that she was somehow not accepted in her society and it could well be because of her history of broken relationships. Now, of course, we don't know what happened to any of these husbands. They may have all died, but somehow there's an inference that actually there's some broken relationships in her past. And in fact, when, um, when she goes and she to tells the townspeople about her encounter with Jesus, her phrase is, this is a man who told me everything I ever did. It's clearly the central issue in her life that has identified who she sees she is. So so we so there's not it's not quite so explicit as the as the previous two examples but I believe that this was somebody who whose life had been totally colored by broken relationships. Yet Jesus accepts her, he talks to her. There are quite a number of social taboos that he he breaks here. He's in Samaria and Samaritans and Jews would not normally talk to each other so there was a racial uh, divide there um, it would not be common practice for him to be talking to a man as a man talking to a woman and also she's a woman who's perhaps socially excluded as well. You know, he breaks all of those social taboos and, and he uh, accepts her and, he, and in the end he stays for a couple of days in the town and many people come to faith. All three of these examples are examples of of Jesus acting with mercy and with grace, not acting with judgment. So I would like us to think about how we model our reactions to other people and to try to model ourselves on what Jesus has done. In those in those particular examples, and if all of this is sounding a little bit distant, uh, I would like to ask Joe if he'll come and talk to us and tell us some of his journey. If uh
1: the sound all goes wrong, I'm sorry, I can't be at the back and the front at the same time. Um, so, uh, I want to talk about my oldest child, um, and I've only got five minutes. I could do it for an hour if you like, but uh, I'll, I'll keep it to five minutes. Um, so, in, um, in 2002, 2002, I was amazingly blessed to see the birth of my first daughter. Um, you know how it is when you're really excited. You've got a child coming, you get the uh, names books. If anybody ever asks you for, if you want the baby names, ask them for adult names and look, see them looking confused. But they're the same thing. Anyway, so uh, we, we had a short list of names that we thought we might want to give our child. And it's a very rational thing because when our child first uh, finally appeared, none of the names fit. I can't tell you how, but they didn't. It took us a long time to decide on a name for my daughter and we went with Esther Mary Wiggers 10 days later. Um, Esther grew up in our family and um, she turned out to be precociously intelligent. Uh, so in reception year in school, she um, they actually took her from reception into year two uh, literacy classes um, because they said apparently year one would be a waste of time on her. And in actual fact, when it came to moving to the next year, they put her straight in year two, um, where she thrived. And she did amazingly. And she's been accelerated in, in school ever since, really. Um, at about eight years old, was a very proud moment for me. She came home and announced that she wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. It's a proud moment for me because I'm an engineer, and I think there are far too few women engineers in the profession. And I thought, yes, I've got one. Yay! Hey. Um, So um, that was great. Um, Unfortunately, about uh, a year later, her mum and I split up. Um, Her mum remarried quite soon after that. Um, And even more unfortunately, a year and a half after that, her second husband died in a car crash, quite tragically. And uh, half a year after that, she was with another man whom she's since married. So um, to give a context of Vesta's life, she's had quite a lot of turmoil. which I'm sure has affected her. At around 10 years old, Esther stopped wearing girls' clothes. Before then, she couldn't be bothered picking her own clothes, she just, she just wore whatever her mother put out for her, really. Um, uh, but it, was, it became more and more noticeable at Lucy and my wedding. Um, she uh, wore a suit, shirt and tie suit, uh, whereas the other three were all in beautiful you know, pink, purple dresses. Um, and it, you know that was very noticeable. My feeling at that time was that there was no point kind of second-guessing what the motives behind that were. We're all created very uh, individually and wonderfully, and bizarrely as well. And um, and uh, the, I, I figured that uh, she would come to me and tell me in her own time when she was ready um as it is it's very difficult to maintain good communications when your child enters the teenagers teens um when they're a long way away uh when they live a long way away and they hate uh c- talking on the phone and Skype, you have to wait till you're face to face to get quality communications and also, I see now that that uh, Esther was showing signs of depression as well. So my focus when I did see my children was on having really positive time and also trying to keep a link with the church for them. So um, really I didn't dig any further because I didn't feel like I had the the position to do so. At 15 years old, after finishing her GCSEs a year early, um, uh, I managed to arrange some engineering work experience for Esther in my own workplace. Um, which went really well. But I spent the whole week with people saying, hey, is, is that your son over at process engineering? I said, no, it's my daughter. Um, and um, two weeks after that finished, I got a text. I'll read it out to you word for word. It was a WhatsApp. Hey, just to let you know I'm transgender, I'm coming back to school in sixth form as Isaac, and I'd appreciate if you would call me the same. I'd be happy to talk to the girls. That's her stepsisters, Hannah and Rachel. Um, now <laughs> I wish she could have told me this three weeks before <laughs> and then when people said hey is that your son I could have just gone yeah <laughs> now having spent the whole week saying no it's my daughter I had to go around and say you know my daughter was doing work <laughs> experience well <laughs> um, and obviously it hurt that, that he couldn't talk to me about it and he told me via WhatsApp I said that's a very difficult thing I think, I would guess that, that he had quite a battle with his mother for uh, at least a couple of years I was aware there was an issue um, and um, I suspect that he really worried that I would judge him or reject him partly because of my beliefs if people ask me what I felt when Isaac announced that he was transgender they might be surprised to learn that my foremost feeling was relief I knew something was up and I knew that he would tell me in his own time and finally it was out there in the open it was like right now we know what's going on what what do I actually feel about him being transgender well my my love for my children was was never based on their gender anyway it's not like I went right are you a girl or a boy girl great I love you it's not like that and that's not changed at all now they're my children and I love them It's it's such an amazing delight and and obviously a duty as a parent to love my children. I can't see that role being affected at all by their LGBTQIA plus um, um, status. I'm still incredibly uh, proud of of Isaac for who he is. He's witty, bright. I love how he... um, loves and is affectionate with his uh, stepsisters especially um, he's still working on being quite so affectionate with myself and his full sister as well um, but you know what it's like with kids um, and he's conscientious and hard-working he's amazingly creative you should see the, the drawings he does i feel that since he came out as transgender my relationship with isaac has improved a lot he manages to be more affectionate with me and he seems to communicate more readily. I think it's meant a huge amount to him to see my love for him completely unaffected by his gender switch. My feeling is that my focus is on praying for his relationship with God to be reignited. Um, I was uh, really heartened last time that he came to us on a Sunday and he, came, he was very very up for coming to church and he went upstairs and seemed to engage very positively and to me my focus then of my prayer time for him is on that, is, is on seeing him being able to feel um, like he could have a relationship with God how his transgender status matches up with his creator is a conversation that Isaac needs to have with God um, my brains aren't big enough to deal with that. They're not king-sized, so we'd better talk to the king. I'd, of course, I'd love to talk sensitively with him about it, but that needs to be something that he needs to invite me to do, because I, what I don't want is to confirm his expectations to be hurt and rejected. My first thought when I think about my son is not that he's transgender. There's so much to him there's so much that's delightful I was asked by someone how he could reject his identity so much but I've seen him through the years, I've seen he feels that living as a girl is a rejection of the gender that he feels inside, that's not something I can help with, it's such an eternal thing that you know I am, however, sure that rejecting him won't help his feelings and his journey, regardless of what I think about it. So, you know, for me, my first, my first um, duty is to just love my son, to accept him, um, and to pray for him to come to know the amazing, loving God.
0: very moving perhaps I'd also like to ask that if Isaac comes that we don't have any pointing fingers or comments I don't think I can say very much more after that Joe said everything I wanted to say but from a, a position where I can't do that. So what I'd like is if the band could come up, I ask them to sing Amazing Grace and I would like us to all perhaps not join in, at least not at first, but reflect the grace that we've all received in our lives where we should have had judgment. The verse says that through many dangers, toils and snares I've already come and it's grace that's led me safe this far and grace is going to lead me home and let's just exercise that
1: grace with other people